Welcome back to the May 2017 episode of Amplify, the podcast corollary to EB Medicine's emergency medicine practice. This month, we're talking about acute decompensated heart failure. We'll be covering all aspects of the acute management from initial ED diagnosis and treatment to novel biomarkers and new and controversial therapies. As always, and I think you know the drill by now, we must start by acknowledging this month's co-authors, Dr. Emily Singer-Fisher and Dr. Boyd Burns of the University of Oklahoma School of Community Medicine for all their diligent work they put into this month's issue. It covers 190 articles and 10 reviews from the Cochrane Database, as well as the most updated guidelines from the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology Foundation. Not bad. And one more really quick note. In this episode, you'll notice a new sound effect at key points during the podcast. Pay attention when you hear it, because it means we're about to cover the answer to one of this month's CME questions. Be sure to go on the site and get your CME credit as you listen through. Absolutely. Did you catch that? So let's talk about heart failure. Acute decompensated heart failure is the number one cause of hospital admission in patients over the age of 65, with prevalence increasing with age. There are also gender and ethnicity disparities, with a higher prevalence found in men as compared to women, and in blacks as compared to whites. Acute decompensations of heart failure currently account for more than 1 million hospital admissions annually, with an economic burden of over $20.7 billion annually. Even more importantly, acute decompensations of heart failure have an in-hospital mortality of 6.4%. Clearly, this is one diagnosis every ED physician must have a firm grasp on. All right, so let's start with the basics. The phrase heart failure that we've been loosely throwing around actually encompasses two distinct entities, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Heart failure with reduced ejection fraction represents impaired systolic contraction, whereas heart failure with preserved ejection fraction represents a filling problem during diastolic relaxation. Patients with a preserved ejection fraction usually have an EF that is either borderline, between 41 to 49%, or normal, over 50%. Typically, both entities begin with an injury to the myocardium, occurring suddenly in the case of coronary ischemia, or more slowly over time due to chronic injury secondary to hypertension and diabetes. But regardless of cause, myocardial injury results in structural and electrophysiologic changes, as well as biochemical remodeling. These changes ultimately can result in ventricular dysfunction, QRS widening, dysrhythmias, and conduction blocks. And although such changes are initially adaptive, over time the compensatory response leads to progressively worsening systolic and diastolic function. To complicate matters, as systemic perfusion declines over time, norepinephrine and arginine vasopressin concentrations are increased and the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone axis is activated. Such changes result in vasoconstriction, further stressing the already failing heart. And it's these same hormonal and circulatory changes that ultimately result in sodium and excess fluid retention, which manifests with the clinical signs and symptoms we all recognize. Fatigue, peripheral edema, and dyspnea often worse with exertion. Although we just spent a few minutes highlighting key differences in the pathophysiology, it's often difficult to distinguish between these two distinct entities in the emergency setting. ED clinical management, though, is similar. All right, let's get started with pre-hospital care. The crux of pre-hospital care begins with stabilization of the patient's airway and breathing. An O2 sat must be obtained and supplemental oxygen should be given as needed. If available and there are no contraindications, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation may be used. There's actually a decent meta-analysis of over 1,000 patients, which showed both a reduction in intubation and mortality when CPAP was used for patients with acute respiratory failure. Tough to argue with both reducing invasive procedures and death. Once the airway has been stabilized, an EKG should be obtained to rule out acute coronary ischemia as a precipitant for the episode of decompensation, as the presence of a STEMI may alter EMS destination and immediate hospital management. 
In terms of medical therapies, sublingual nitroglycerin may be given to those with elevated blood pressure and the classic symptoms of heart failure. In one study of 75 pre-hospital patients with presumed heart failure exacerbations, high-dose nitroglycerin therapy, defined as two 0.4 tabs for those with a systolic pressure over 180 and three 0.4 milligram tabs for those with a systolic over 200, was very well tolerated with only a 3.2% rate of hypotension that all resolved without intervention. The same cannot be said for pre-hospital furosemide. In one study examining patients who received pre-hospital furosemide, those who received furosemide had more adverse events and longer hospital stays. In a second study, pre-hospital diuresis was deemed potentially harmful in 17% of patients. Making matters even worse, in the first study, one-third of patients were not ultimately discharged with a diagnosis of heart failure. In the second study, a whopping 42% didn't receive a subsequent heart failure diagnosis. Those numbers do stand out, but let's be fair to our pre-hospital colleagues. Without any ancillary testing, the differential for acute respiratory distress is broad, and we'll cover that in a second, and such initial misdiagnosis is understandable. Sure, I definitely agree, but given this difficulty, I think the safest evidence-based position to take is exactly the position that doctors Fisher and Burns take. Pre-hospital management and heart failure should focus on respiratory stabilization, and targeted medical therapy should be avoided. Fair enough. All right, let's move on to the initial ED evaluation. Although history gathering is often limited by respiratory distress, a thorough history is a must. The ED physician must assess duration, onset, and severity of the patient's symptoms to help determine whether there was an acute event or if the episode is more of a gradual decompensation. Such distinctions will be helpful in both narrowing the differential and also determining the precipitant of the acute decompensation. Great point and a perfect segue for me to review table two on page four of this month's issue. Although at this point we've already started focusing on heart failure, remember that when caring for an acutely dyspneic patient, the first job of the emergency physician is to consider the life-threatening causes for acute dyspnea. These include not only heart failure, but also COPD, asthma, pneumonia, pulmonary embolism, ACS, aortic dissection, pericarditis, pneumothorax, and a pericardial effusion. Right, and even when the ED physician has settled on the diagnosis of heart failure after a thorough history and physical, he must go a step further to investigate possible precipitants. These are covered in Table 1 on page 4, and I'll run through them here too. You have ACS, valvular dysfunction, arrhythmia, PE, myocarditis, hypertensive urgency, pericardial tamponade, severe anemia, worsening renal failure, sepsis, thyroid dysfunction, drug noncompliance, dietary indiscretion, and medication side effects. Quite the list. To help you both narrow your differential, but also explore possible underlying etiologies, there are a couple of key questions to address, especially in patients not well known to your hospital system. First, a baseline exercise tolerance should help you establish the severity of the underlying disease. Extensive tobacco use may point to COPD. Cancer history or lack of appropriate screening may raise your suspicion for a PE. A history of cardiac surgery is another obvious clue, and so too is the presence of an AICD, which are typically reserved for those with more severe disease. But there are also more subtle clues like medication doses. Low-dose ACE inhibitors and beta blockers point to a low to low normal blood pressure, whereas higher doses indicate a more severe baseline disease. Another subtle but very important clue would be weight gain. As volume status is often difficult to ascertain, either asking the patient their weight or measuring it may give you some valuable information. Weight gain of at least 5 pounds in the preceding 3 days has a high specificity but low sensitivity for detecting acute decompensated heart failure. Alright, so let's move on to the physical exam. As always, this begins the minute you walk through the door. Quickly pause and assess the patient's positioning in the bed. 
Patients who are sitting up and leaning forward struggling to breathe require urgent intervention. Patients laying back who appear tired and fatigued are likely on the verge of complete respiratory collapse and require emergent intervention. Be on the lookout also for cardiac cachexia. This syndrome is characterized by the loss of both quantity and quality of skeletal muscles, which can lead to a deficit in inspiratory muscle strength, which can further respiratory demise. Great point. And as you approach the patient, especially if they're sitting up or ideally can lay comfortably with the head of the bed at 30 degrees, assess for jugular venous distension. This is a really quick, non-invasive way to evaluate right heart pressures. And one last important observation to make before laying hands on the patient for the actual exam would be a quick mental status evaluation. Delirium in an acute heart failure patient is predictive of worse clinical outcomes and a higher short-term mortality. That's interesting, but also not terribly surprising since delirium itself portends such poor outcomes. Moving on to the physical, there are only a couple of key points here which I'm going to breeze through since most of them are pretty basic. Basic, but also basically the most important. True. Rails are suggestive of fluid collecting in the lungs, and the increasing cranial caudal height may be indicative of more severe disease. Wheezing may either be, quote, cardiac wheeze, or may indicate primary obstructive pulmonary disease. In terms of the cardiac exam, a new murmur may indicate valvular dysfunction, distant heart sounds may point to a pericardial effusion, and an S3 gallop is actually considered diagnostic for heart failure. Moving to the lower extremities, the presence and extent of edema is an important indicator of volume status. But watch out also for asymmetric swelling, which may prompt the hunt for a DVT or PE. Lastly, cool extremities with a weak narrow pulse may indicate a low perfusion state and severe disease. Although many listeners will probably have begun treating the patient based on the history and physical alone, let's go in order here and move on to the diagnostic studies. Let's also do this quickly since I suspect most listeners have a firm grasp on this. First up is the EKG. Look for strain patterns while you evaluate for coronary ischemia and dysrhythmias. X-ray is next. On the X-ray, remember to evaluate for both pulmonary vascular congestion and for cardiomegaly. Pulmonary vascular congestion can manifest itself in several ways. In the early stages, you might see a redistribution of the pulmonary vascularity towards the upper lobes, otherwise known as cephalization. As congestion increases, you might see interstitial edema, or 1 to 2 centimeter lines perpendicular to the pleural surface at the periphery, which are also known as curly B lines. There are some helpful images on page 7 if you're more of a visual person. And as congestion continues to worsen, you might see alveolar edema, basilar or perihilar consolidations, or even pleural effusions. Don't forget to look out for alternate diagnoses like pneumonia and pneumothoraces. The next diagnostic study to talk about is ultrasound, both pulmonary and cardiac. I think it merits a deeper dive since it's an amazing tool and not everyone is as familiar with it. Formal echocardiography is the primary imaging modality to evaluate a patient's cardiac function, but the bedside ED study is just as valuable. In just a few minutes, echo can evaluate for valvular dysfunction, pericardial effusion, ascertain a basic ejection fraction, examine for diastolic dysfunction, and also identify wall motion abnormalities, which may be indicative of ischemia. Assessment of the ejection fraction is a key part of the exam. Although a quick look assessment gives a decent global sense, we can all do better. As a simple tool, measure the EF by determining the E-point septal separation, or EPSS. This is the smallest distance between the tip of the mitral leaflet and the intraventricular septum during diastole, best assessed in M-mode. The larger the distance, the lower the EF, with an EPSS of greater than 7 millimeters, indicative of poor EF. The words may sound intimidating, but figure 6 on page 8 will definitely help. Additionally, SECO and others show that 3rd and 4th year EM residents could accurately use this tool, which means that most listeners will have no trouble with it. 
As a slightly more advanced bedside ultrasound technique, you can also evaluate diastolic function for those with a preserved ejection fraction. In the apical four-chamber view, examine the mitral annulus as it opens and closes. Slowing of the annulus during the initial phase of rapid filling in early diastole is indicative of diastolic dysfunction. With the bedside echo complete, we can move on to the thoracic ultrasound. The lung ultrasound is very quick and is technically easier than cardiac ultrasound, so it really should be incorporated into your initial focused exam. On lung ultrasound, you're looking for B lines, which are vertical hyperechoic lines that arise from the pleura and run down perpendicularly through it. A representative image can be found on page 9. Three or more B lines in two or more bilateral lung zones is indicative of pulmonary edema. And as compared to chest x-ray, pulmonary ultrasound has a great degree of both sensitivity and specificity in diagnosing acute decompensated heart failure. And again, if you're intimidated by the thought of incorporating it into your bedside armamentarium, you shouldn't be. In one study, after just 30 minutes of training, novice practitioners performed similarly to trained emergency ultrasonographers with respect to identifying B-lines on exam. So skill can't be your excuse. What about time? Also not a good one. In another study, Gallard and others examined the use of bedside cardiopulmonary ultrasound in the diagnosis of heart failure, and they found that on average, it took emergency physicians just 12 minutes to complete their ultrasound exam. 12 minutes for diagnostic closure? Not bad. All right, let's move on to lab markers. First up, the cardiac markers. Brain type natriuretic peptide, or BNP, is produced in the left ventricle in response to volume or pressure overload. It counteracts the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. A BNP below the reference value has a high negative predictive value, which means it's really helpful in ruling out heart failure. On the flip side, the same cannot be said for an elevated BNP. An elevated BNP cannot alone diagnose heart failure, but can be used to help put together a complete clinical picture. Additionally, higher BNPs in men, not women, are associated with worse long-term prognosis. Our next marker is troponin. Elevated troponin levels alone are associated with an increased in-hospital mortality. In one study, those with an elevated troponin had an in-hospital mortality of 8% versus 2.7%. An elevated troponin is also associated with higher rates of rehospitalization and an increased 90-day mortality. A CBC should also be obtained since severe anemia can contribute to both the development of heart failure and also cause severe dyspnea. Doctors Fisher and Burns recommend a transfusion cutoff of 8 grams per deciliter as their threshold. A complete metabolic panel should also be obtained. Worsening renal function and elevated liver enzymes may be signs of end-organ dysfunction, and both are associated with poorer outcomes. Additionally, a low sodium can be a feature of advanced heart failure. There are several other tests that may be helpful, but checking them shouldn't be part of your routine practice. Thyroid studies may help explain new heart failure or unclear cases. Additionally, tests for amyloidosis, pheochromocytoma, and other rheumatologic disorders may be useful in rare cases. Definitely not part of my routine practice. Although I'm going a bit off script here, I wanted to mention the molecule Syndicin-1. A lab test for it is not yet widely available, but in one small study, it was predictive of both acute kidney injury and in-hospital mortality. Hopefully, we'll hear more about it soon. Okay, so that wraps up testing. Let's move on to management. As always, ABCs come first, so the first step is ensuring adequate oxygenation and ventilation with supplemental oxygen, non-invasive ventilation, or intubation as indicated. We already discussed non-invasive ventilation a bit in the pre-hospital section, but remember that non-invasive ventilation can often stave off intubation, and unless there are contraindications, a trial of non-invasive ventilation should be attempted prior to intubation. Non-invasive positive pressure ventilation is great. It helps recruit functional alveoli and prevents collapse. It also expels intra-alveolar fluid. 
In one retrospective analysis of over 2,400 patients from a large heart failure registry, researchers found that non-invasive ventilation improved outcomes over endotracheal intubation. Importantly, this same study showed no harm in delaying intubation for a trial of non-invasive ventilation. For more on non-invasive ventilation, check out the February 2017 issue of Emergency Medicine Practice, which covers this topic in depth. And when we say non-invasive ventilation, we want to be clear that we're referring to both CPAP and BiPAP. It hasn't been entirely fleshed out, but current evidence doesn't suggest a significant difference in outcomes between those on CPAP and BiPAP for those with respiratory failure secondary to exacerbated heart failure. Both modalities do compare favorably to supplemental oxygen alone, as they have been shown to prevent progression to intubation and decrease ICU length of stay. If you take nothing else away from this episode, remember that non-invasive ventilation is a must and that ultrasound is your new stethoscope, or at the very least, an extension of your stethoscope and should be right with you at the bedside during your initial evaluation. I think that's fair to say, but let's cover some pharmacology before we start making summary statements. First up are the vasodilators. These include nisiratide, nitroprusside, and nitroglycerin. Nitroglycerin is the most frequently used of these. Recall that nitroprusside carries a risk for cyanide toxicity and it's fallen out of favor. Nitroglycerin reduces preload and afterload and improves the patient's cardiac function. As blood pools in the venous system, this decreases the patient's respiratory distress and often the chest pain, thus counteracting the patient's sympathetic overdrive and improving their respiratory function. The exact starting dose for your nitroglycerin drip has been hotly debated without a clear answer. Some prefer to start in the 50 to 100 micrograms per minute range and then titrate up to 400 micrograms per minute as needed. Others argue that the correct approach is to start at 400 micrograms per minute for two minutes as a loading dose, and then decrease to 100 micrograms per minute and titrate as needed from there. Regardless, the clinician must stay at the bedside while this vasoactive medication is being titrated to avoid hypotension. And don't forget about the typically readily available sublingual nitroglycerin as the pumps are being set up. Nasiratide, which is a recombinant form of BNP, has also been studied. However, these studies show a significant risk of hypotension and bradycardia as compared to standard care. At this time, nasiratide doesn't have a role in managing heart failure patients. ACE inhibitors definitely have a role in the chronic setting, but don't seem to play a role in the acute setting. As more of an FYI, older trials did look at adding an ACE inhibitor to standard care, but they found that patients had a more rapid improvement in dyspnea at the expense of precipitating hypotension, which limited their use. Great point. The calcium channel blocker clavidipine has also been studied in two trials, the PRONTO trial and the VELOCITY trial. Basically, both were drug manufacturer-funded studies from which we can only draw limited conclusions. So if I can summarize the vasodilator section, although the data on high versus low-dose nitrates is lacking, with few studies showing significant outcomes benefits, most agree that nitrates are safe and rapidly improve symptoms. Nitrates are also recommended by the practice guidelines of the American College of Emergency Physicians. The next class of medications to discuss are the inotropes. While most patients with acute decompensated heart failure are hypertensive, a small subset will present with hypotension. In such patients, the hypotension is typically driven by a combination of intravascular depletion and severely reduced cardiac output. So the natural response would be to start either fluids or inotropes. However, in studies trying to flesh this out, in those with a systolic blood pressure over 80, inotropes have been shown to provide no benefit and may pose potential harm. In such patients, Dr. Fisher and Burns as well as the American Heart Association, recommend small fluid boluses followed by inotropes in those who don't respond appropriately to the initial fluid bolus and in those whose blood pressure drops below 80 systolic. The first inotrope mentioned is digoxin. Just like the ACE inhibitors, digoxin plays a role in chronic management of heart failure. In one comprehensive study by the Digitalis Investigation Group, digoxin was shown to have no survival benefit over placebo. 
The next inotrope discussed is dopamine. At intermediate and high doses, dopamine increases pulmonary wedge pressure and causes vasoconstriction respectively, thus limiting its use. At low doses, it causes vasodilatation and increases coronary and renal blood flow. However, this has not been shown to improve renal function. Dopamine has very little evidence to support its use in the acute setting. Dubutamine, on the other hand, is one inotrope you may consider in certain circumstances. Dubutamine is a beta-1 and beta-2 agonist, and it increases myocardial contractility and cardiac output. In studies, dubutamine has been shown to improve heart failure symptoms. In these same studies, however, it has also been shown ultimately to increase mortality. Additionally, many patients with heart failure will be on beta blockers, and this limits dubutamine's utility anyway. In those on beta blockers, and for most patients, norepinephrine is a great choice for inotropy and refractory hypotension. Norepinephrine increases inotropy and chronotropy while causing peripheral vasoconstriction. It does, however, increase heart rate and myocardial oxygen demand, thus stressing an already ailing heart. The last inotrope to discuss here is milrinone, a phosphodiesterase inhibitor. In one large RCT of almost 1,000 patients with acute heart failure, milrinone was associated with increased dysrhythmias and hypotension without any benefit, so its use is not recommended. The take-home here is that for hypotensive patients with heart failure exacerbations refractory to small fluid boluses, the evidence-based recommendation would be to either start dobutamine or norepinephrine. Both should be used with caution. Nice summary. Let's talk about diuretics, another mainstay of therapy. In patients with evidence of fluid overload, IV diuretics should be started early in the ED stay. Did you notice a double ding? Really important stuff coming up. Based on current available evidence, the IV diuretic dose should be either equal to or greater than the patient's daily oral loop diuretic dose to improve outcomes. Although the effect kicks in later in their hospital course, evidence supports early administration. And in the rare cases where cardiogenic shock persists despite fluids and inotropes, when available, intraaortic balloon pumps, ECMO, and LVAD placement may be considered. As these therapies are not well studied and are rarely available, they should only be considered a salvage therapy at this time. I think we should also discuss the role of early revascularization. By all means, please do. As most listeners probably know, it can be difficult to distinguish demand ischemia from true ACS, which are managed differently in the acute setting. The shock trial, which looked at patients with cardiogenic shock secondary to ACS, showed a 67% relative improvement in six-year survival in those managed with rapid revascularization. Clearly, finding this exact population is a must. But in another observational study, only 27% of patients with heart failure who had angiography required revascularization, which similarly reduced rates of mortality and rehospitalization. This means that 73% underwent unnecessary angiography. Hopefully, further studies will help clarify this issue. All right, on to new and novel therapies. Levosimendin is a new, quote, calcium sensitizer, which increases myocardial contractility and causes vasodilatation. It's been approved for use in Europe, but not yet in the United States. In the REVIVE study, lesosamendin did result in more rapid symptomatic improvement, but it also increased the risk of hypotension and dysrhythmias. This was also a drug manufacturer-funded study. It's been tested in smaller settings in combination with other drugs, so it's hard to really flesh out the exact role it played. Serolexin is a recombinant human relaxin too. This vasoactive peptide causes vasodilatation and stimulates cardiac remodeling. Although drug manufacturer-funded studies have found symptomatic improvement, it's yet to be approved and currently isn't recommended in managing heart failure. Ularitide, a synthetic human natriuretic peptide, is currently in phase 2 testing. Early studies showed improvement in hemodynamic parameters without improvements in mortality. Sendiratide, a fusion product of human mature C-type natriuretic peptide with the dendroaspis natriuretic peptide, is a new vasodilator. 
It's currently in preclinical trials, but it's thought to be a vasodilator with minimal effect on blood pressure and renal perfusion. The last novel drug is omecamtiv mecarbil, which is a cardiac myosin activator. It's just entering the testing phase, so you may be hearing more about it in the near future. So that wraps up the drugs. There's only one technology to discuss, and that would be ultrafiltration. Ultrafiltration provides fluid removal without removal of electrolytes via a PICC line. It should be considered in patients who fail a trial of diuresis. Interestingly, the UNLOAD trial took it one step further and studied ultrafiltration versus diuretic therapy for those with functional kidneys. This study found that ultrafiltration removed a larger quantity of fluid than traditional diuresis. It was safe with no increased incidence of adverse outcomes, but it was more invasive and expensive. Interesting. I'd be curious to see more studies looking into starting ultrafiltration early, maybe even starting in the ED, especially in the elderly, who are often miserable after we give them a solid dose of furosemide. Yeah, that would be a good study. All right, so now we've taken the patient from the pre-hospital setting, worked them up, diagnosed them, and started treating them. Let's talk about disposition. Generally, most patients with acute decompensated heart failure will require admission. Only the most mild cases can go home. Most patients will be suitable for admission to a floor telemetry bed. Patients with signs of hypoperfusion, hypotension, significant renal dysfunction, those on nitroglycerin or inotrope drips, and those requiring non-invasive or invasive ventilatory support will all merit an ICU admission. Excellent. Let's summarize the key points from today's episode. Heart failure is largely a clinical diagnosis. Cardiopulmonary ultrasound is an easily available bedside tool that is both sensitive and specific for heart failure. Management begins with the ABCs, providing respiratory support at varying degrees based on clinical stability. The use of non-invasive ventilation can reduce the need for intubation and improve outcomes. The mainstay of medical therapy are the loop diuretics. Hypertensive patients may benefit from a nitroglycerin drip. The best starting dose is yet to be elucidated. Hypotensive patients should be given small boluses of fluid initially. If the systolic blood pressure remains below 80 despite fluid resuscitation, inotrope should be started. Dobutamine is the first-line agent for patients in cardiogenic shock, with norepinephrine being the agent of choice for those on beta blockers. All right, so that wraps up Amplify episode number four. For our resident and student listeners out there, in case you've been enjoying Amplify but haven't had access to the print editions, did you know that EB Medicine offers free access to emergency medicine practice for all residents and all students? That's right, totally free. Residents around the world use these resources to supplement their curriculum and stay up to date on the latest research across hundreds of clinical topics. Head on over to www.ebmedicine.net slash residents to get started with that today. And if you love the latest evidence-based practice guidelines as much as I think you do, don't forget to register for the upcoming Clinical Decision-Making Conference this June in Ponte Vedra Beach, Florida. Check out www.clinicaldecisionmaking.com for more information and registration information. See you guys next time.